Hello everyone and welcome to the Encrypted Podcast. Encrypted is the Middle East's first and largest podcast dedicated to blockchain and cryptocurrencies. I'm your host Ahmed Abilaghi and in today's episode we have Jamie Burke, who is the co-founder and CEO of Outlier Ventures, one of the leading European blockchain and crypto VCs and incubators. We've covered so much in this episode and realized that there could be a whole series around the topics we discussed. We talk about the Outlier Ventures convergence thesis, the layout of the new internet, commonly known as Web 3.0, theorizing how it could play out and what's needed to achieve that vision. Additionally, Jamie touches on what they have done today, what makes them different as a VC investing in this space, and he also shares the recent partnership with the Dubai government. Before we jump in, I'd really like to thank those who've been supporting the show. I remember you could support us in any way possible. You could subscribe, rate and review the show, sharing the podcast on your social media and any other way you feel like supporting. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hello everyone and welcome to Encrypted. Today I'm in London, recording here from London in this really depressing weather. It's June and it's raining and cold which is really weird. But anyways, I am joined by Jamie Burke from Outlier Ventures. Say hello. Hi there. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. For those who don't know you, could you introduce yourself? Yeah, so Jamie Burke, CEO and founder of Outlier Ventures. We've been around for just under five years. We were Europe's first dedicated blockchain investment vehicle. Awesome. Europe's dedicated investment vehicle. Is that a VC? What does that mean? Yeah, so I, I use that language quite deliberately because we're unique in our structure. Yeah. So unlike most funds where you know there are a handful of GPs that manage and deploy the capital of LPs, so it's yeah. not, not typically their own capital, we're actually uh, an LLP partnership. So we're a partnership of... 20 plus members now. Okay. And it's our own capital that we've been mm-hmm. deploying over the last five years. And so that, that's very unique to the space. And it's afforded us the luxury of being able to do what we want, really. Yeah. And, and, and allowed us to kind of navigate right at the edge of this industry. Obviously, it's very fast moving mm-hmm. and, you know, crypto assets. It allowed us to move very quickly into crypto assets and away from just equity, although we do we do do both. So that's why we refer to ourselves as as that. Sometimes we like to say that we're a venture platform, okay? Because again, we we don't just kind of passively deploy capital. We have the core businesses really more like an incubator, yeah, where we work with very early stage projects through their full life cycle. So we kind of look at these things in a 10-year-plus context, because we're investing at the protocol layer, and we're about to launch something that's more akin to an accelerator. So that's kind of working with live token networks that need help in either optimizing the token design or diffusing the innovation, getting it in the hands of developers, having innovation happen on top of the application layer. So we're, we're more akin to an incubator than we would be to a fund. All right. And you said you started it in 2014. Is that when you got into the space personally? or Yeah, so I personally got interested in the space maybe a year prior to that. Okay. To be honest with you, it's all a bit of a blur. Time's okay. a very weird beast in crypto because things just move so Trust quickly. Me, yeah. But I, I was angel investing in kind of just general startups, mm-hmm. web, web startups, 
And I was looking at one project that was looking at kind of peer-to-peer lending mm-hmm. here in the UK, um, consumer peer-to-peer lending, and was doing research in you know, P2P and then came across Bitcoin. And initially, it kind of just caught my attention intellectually. Well, that's an yeah. interesting thing. I didn't really, didn't really think of it in a commercial context. Mm-hmm. And then the kind of more I started to think about it, and I think I went to the first Bitcoin conference here mm. in London. I forget exactly when that was, but it yeah. would have been around that time. And, you know, heard a load of speakers and, and immediately it started to click. So my background prior to being an angel investor, have have a career effectively working in digital innovation, change mm-hmm. management with, with large complex blue chip type organizations yeah. and so have had the benefit of working across a number of different industries and different value chains supply mm-hmm. chains and so as i started to understand the tech you know the idea of uh, distributed ledger and uh, digital scarcity mm-hmm. the idea that you could have something that is both digital and scarce was kind of when it all really clicked and then yeah. of course um, when Ethereum came along with the promise of kind of smart contracts, that as a toolkit got me really excited. And I think I pretty much just stopped mm. doing anything other than blockchain. And that's where I started set, set up Outlier Ventures, set aside all the kind of liquid capital I had to say, look, let's explore this space. I didn't expect the industry to take off as quickly as it did, mm-hmm. brought on board my co-founder, uh, CTO, called Aaron Van Amers, with a small development team and said, look, let's just get some applied learning. Let's play with the technology, figure out what you could do with it, which wasn't very much. Yeah. And that applied learning would help us understand the technology, you know, horizon it from a from yeah. a timing perspective. And then, you know, five years later, here we are. Awesome. So I've, I've done as much reading as I could have from all the research you guys have done. And so, so I've seen the word convergence, which you guys are known for, um, pioneering that, that sort of investment thesis and the fact that you, you have your own development teams in house because that, that there's a lot of, um, talk about funds should be more technical. Yeah. They should have technical analysts. They should have coders, not just to support the startups, but actually, you know, do the, doing the applied learning that, yeah. that you just brought up. Is that something you guys are activating sort of? advocating for in the in the sense where you're learning by doing especially in this nascent industry how like h- how much of the applied learning has been sort of discovery and then it's and i'm sure there must be a lot of failures like oh this doesn't work and are you guys still deploying that and un- until how much yeah like what's the sort of ceiling on that or is there no ceiling yeah so it, it kind of comes back to how we're structured so you know, most funds have to finance their operational costs through management fee, which is typically a percentage of, you know, the capital that's being deployed. I, I think it can be as high as maybe 4%, but on average it's about 2%, something like that. And it can be as low as 1%. So you know, they're very limited in terms of what they can do. Usually that that literally just, you know, finances a handful at best of GPs and certainly if you've got a fund sub 50 in in terms of the money that's being managed and so they can't really do very much other than you know due diligence and then support their various portfolio but you know the reality is if the, the more investments they do the thinner their spread so because 
we're not reliant on management fees, yeah. our own capital w- that we deploy. Because it's our own capital that we deploy, we are able to you know, recycle our gains over the last okay. five years, reinvest it back into this platform. So that's why we refer to the thing as a venture platform. So we've got 30, 30 people full-time each kind of specializing in different a- aspects of being able to support our investments through that cycle. And that's everything from um, token design, thinking through on and off-chain governance. It's, uh, you know, the thinking through the issuance of a, yeah. of a token, um, how you're building out that capital market around it, as well as the diffusion of the innovation, getting in the yeah. hands of developers and enterprise. So we're unique in that we can finance that ourselves, from our profits and so actually we function kind of like a business We're, we are yeah. a profitable business and we reinvest pretty much all of our returns into this platform and so yeah. we've committed to reinvest about 30 million us dollars of our own capital over the next three years just in supporting yeah. our investments so not the capital that we give them Okay. But the capital alongside. So from that perspective, we're able to provide this kind of really um, unique service offering. And so, you know, when you think in the context of convergence, it's an increasingly technical thesis. So originally we wrote a paper, I don't know, it's over three years ago, maybe three and a half years ago, which was this com- convergence thesis where we felt DLT was most interesting in, in combination with things like IoT and AI, really building out this new data economy. More recently, because of the technical people that we've hired and built around our CTO, that's allowed us to go really, really, really deep into the tech. And so now we actually think of our portfolio not just as a portfolio, but as a literal technology stack. So a highly synergistic set of protocols and we're now at the point where we are directly integrating them. So we're fusing them together. So we've got okay. a number of instances where in-house we've integrated, say, Fetch and Sovereign. So we can have identity for mm-hmm. autonomous economic agents. And so you can then know you can trust these agents to carry out certain activities. So we've, what does that mean by just agents? Like, Yeah, so, so Fetch.ai... Uh, effectively enables people, data sets, mm-hmm. or you know, devices to have digital representatives. Those yeah. digital representatives try to create economic value on their behalf mm-hmm. in, a, in a marketplace autonomously. But these agents have economic agency, so they can carry out economic work without people. Um, which sounds really sci-fi, but it's the technology is there. It's doing it. So, in th- so, so as an example, you could have a they, they released um, a, a kind of case study uh, just a couple of weeks ago. I think this week actually, which was saying you know there's video cameras on car parks. They obviously are recording uh, cars coming in out. Space is being available. And, you know, if you can apply, take that video feed, apply machine learning to it, you can figure out where there are free parking spaces around a city. So effectively, you would have an AEA representing that camera feed. It would sell itself out to algorithms that were looking to be able to provide a service to drivers to find um, parking spaces. And effectively, 
any any kind of data feed that can somehow record an inefficiency whereby machine learning could be applied to optimize that inefficiency, you could have an agent. And so the, the big vision is that you end up with these marketplaces of autonomous economic agents that are uh, carrying out activity forming markets bottom up, finding correlations between you know unmet needs and and solutions and services and uh you know it, it's 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 really powerful i mean we, yeah. we just went that's probably one of the more complex of all of our investments yeah. <laughs> it's, you know it's not 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 the one i usually start with but but nevertheless i think it shows this this potential for what can be done with what we we call the convergence stack so to kind of circle back to you know your original question about with this technical resource and talent, is it is it for learning and due diligence, or is it for kind of this deployment and integration? It's it's both. So by actively using these technologies, we run nodes in all live networks or test networks. We sometimes contribute to the code on GitHub. We you know report bugs. We you know, perform all kinds of different audits, security audits, and, and various other stuff. And so having that intimate knowledge of our the technology we're investing in, but actually also the wider space, so we don't just play around with tech that we've invested in, we play around with any tech that we find interesting in the space. Yeah. That helps us be a better investor, because effectively, you know, we can invest with that context of yeah. the technological landscape, and have a better understanding of what is really possible. Because one of the biggest challenges in investing, especially in, in the tech space, is uh, you can be too early. Yeah. Um, so you can have That's true. great tech with great promise, but sometimes being first isn't always best. And I think we're, we're definitely starting to see that now with a lot of these Gen 1 protocols that are very quickly being overtaken by Gen 2, because yeah. Gen 2 can learn from the limitations or shortfallings of, of Gen 1. So hopefully that makes us a better investor and you then get this virtuous feedback loop. And the kind of consequence of that for us has been this highly synergistic technology stack where most of our investments amplify our other investments yeah. and accelerate in combination accelerate the likelihood of them being adopted and usable. So it, it's akin to sort of like an, an emerging tech fund where the thesis in always started off with blockchain, but it's like, oh, wait a minute, we see that it, on its own, it's not that great. But with other things um, like AI, robotics and IoT as well, it becomes this really big thing. And I, I also get it's this idea of digital economies and sort of paradigm shift in how people will interact, whether it's people to people, people to machine, or even machine yeah. to machine. Yeah. Um, so um, to follow up on, on the convergence stack, do you mind qu quickly giving a sort of quick definition on sure. what that means and where you see that? So this is a three-part question. So what it means, where do you see it going and the current application that we're, we're seeing with it right now? So the convergence stack, what we've done, and you, you can see it on the website, we framed these new emergent technologies that people would maybe label the decentralized web or web three. And we framed those emerging technologies in an OSI like framework. So effectively 
you're looking at it from the hardware layer all the way up to the application layer. And so effectively, it's a new internet. And so at the heart of that technology stack for us is this idea of a new data economy. So ultimately, this is all about how we are capturing, transporting, making available data to feed into increasingly automated and autonomous systems. So that's why you have the IoT data capture. You then have kind of big data, data marketplaces mm -hmm. being fed into machine learning mm -hmm. uh, to allow for this kind of automation and then eventually autonomy. So, so that's kind of the thought process. Now, why that's important or how that speaks to the web and the internet as it is today is that if you think about the last 20 years of the internet, the web in particular, we have kind of two innovations. We have um, the platform uh, model, which is these kind of centralized marketplaces, mediated marketplaces, and then you have the cloud. So this IT architecture infrastructure that enables the platform to scale to a planetary scale. And the combination of those two things has been hugely successful. It's delivered as huge convenience, but it's become so successful that it's near ubiquitous. And as we move into things like AR and spatial computing, you know, we are, and in combination with biometrics, literally this, the, the kind of business model of the platform, which effectively for, for a lot of the US companies is surveillance capitalism. And, you know, in China, you might call it digital statism. But ultimately, there's this, the heart of a platform model is, is this data capture whereby the, uh, they would like to call it this digital exhaust from providing services, whether that's search or social, allows, uh, can be fed back into proprietary algorithms that can then perform behavioral modification. And that's primarily for advertising, but in increasingly it's for other things. And so it's a very extractative and increasingly antisocial model. And so, you know, some governments around the world, in particular, uh, European governments, um, because they don't necessarily have the benefit of the surveillance capitalism, is that you know they're trying to limit or constrain or break up these platform monopolies. But what we're excited by is that this technology stack is so that's you know the government's trying to do the top down thing, but there is this bottom up emergent technology stack or toolkit for developers which is doing two things. It's unbundling these platforms and it's decentralizing the cloud. And yeah. so it's it's removing the advantage or the moat that the cloud platform model has. And that is, you know, placing sovereignty, sovereignty, uh, self-sovereignty and sovereignty of data at the center of a new model for the web, uh, a new business model. And so, so for us, that's kind of what's at the heart of why we're excited about this space. You know, that's our that's our purpose and our mission yeah. is to enable the acceleration of that web. But also, you can make a lot of money doing it too because for the first time ever, you have, through tokenization, you have the ability to invest in the next wave of protocols that are going to, you know, redefine, restructure, re-architect the internet. 
And so it's like being able to invest in SMTP or HTTP or these, you know, universal standards that are the, 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 the DNA or the backbone of, of the internet. Absolutely. And to, yeah, to follow up on, there are so many questions I have. Um, I don't know which one to start off with, but to basically circle back to, what you said about the about Web 3.0, um, and you said it's a new data economy. So it's basically the idea of the, these big companies not um, owning our data. We have sort of data back in our hands. How long do you think this notion of of people understanding that their data is theirs and that they could sort of potentially sell it through an autonomous agent? They'll probably be a broker, you know, sometime in the future. How long do you think we'll get to that point? Because like I said, it's an opportunity, you'll make a lot of money from it, hopefully. And the government, at least here in Europe, they're, they're, they're helping with that sort of unbundling, like like you mentioned. But how long do you think it will take? 10 plus years, like you mentioned before? or Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at Bitcoin, you know, that's 10 years. Um, and it's still only just really getting going, yeah. making any kind of impact on the average person's life. So, and if you look at most pro internet protocols, it's at least 10 years before they kind of reach a level of adoption that you could say is meaningful or impactful. So yeah, it, it's at least a generation's work, maybe a couple of generations, right? So, um, very long term. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very long term. But the interesting thing is, uh, so you, you touched upon it a little bit earlier, this distinction between peer-to-peer in the context of people or machine to machine. So the interesting thing about the innovation of digital scarcity and DLT is that it enables, you know, truer forms of peer-to-peer -peer value exchange. Now, most people when they think of crypto and blockchains, they think of people, they think of you know, people being able to carry out transactions with one another without a bank or, or, or whatever it is. And they think the success of crypto is predicated upon people willingly and knowingly adopting a new kind of digital money. We don't think that is um, how you would define the success of crypto. So for us, if you think about how the internet is today, there are more devices connected to the internet than people already. And half of all web traffic is from bots, and half of that is what you would call malicious activity. So the economic activity that is happening on the internet, people are an increasingly shrinking part of it. So we have this population of devices and then increasingly digital agents carrying out economic work on our behalf. Um, and so actually, when you think about the success of um, these distributed ledger technology, it will be its ability to enable machines to carry out activity with other machines um, often invisibly. So the, the, the really cool thing, so people are irrational. So you speak to any economist, you know, they will tell you the bane of their life is uh, the assumption that people will behave rationally in their self-interest and trying to design for that mm. when in reality people just don't, don't do what you think they should do. They are illogical. Now, with this, these new constituents, this growing constituents of machines, by design, they are logical. And so it's actually much easier, in, in theory, to design for uh, machines that would follow logic than, than people. And so the way that we look at 
distributed ledger technology and the role of crypto assets in them is crypto assets are coordination mechanisms to incentivize games to be carried out by machines. And, you know, the idea of us devolving increasing amounts of economic work to digital agents only works if you know that those agents are going to serve the individual's interest rather than the platform. So, you know, with Alexa at the moment, who does Alexa really help? Is it you or is it Amazon and or, or Siri or any other kind of, let's call it uh, digital assistant? But in the decentralized web where you know by design the model of it, the economic model of that internet, that web, is self-sovereignty, then agents serve the individual, the individual's interests, and therefore individuals will become increasingly more comfortable in devolving economic work to these agents to carry it out on their behalf. And so increasingly, the activity that will happen on these ledgers will be digital representatives carrying out economic work with machines, devices, invisibly. And so so people will be a shrinking, like people directly doing things on protocols. So if you like code-to-machine so transaction, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, and, and the great thing is, because we have these digital assets, because they're digital, they're programmable. So the success of crypto in this context is our ability to uh, hard-code game theory into the protocols of the the new protocols of the internet to have machines optimize for certain things to, to perform activity under certain conditions. So the promise of that is is that we end up with a rules based web where whereby we we devolve trust or we trust in the logic of these games that we design rather than trusting in platforms. To, to serve our interests. Okay, so I, being devil's advocate, with platforms that are centrally owned, they could be changed 20, 30 years down the line. So if Facebook created, sorry, Apple created Siri, created it in 2010 or whenever, but of course, cost consumer needs change, habits change, values change. So therefore, Apple could just change Siri according to the market needs. But when you codify sort of principles and logic, but this is what sort of your opinion or subjective opinion of logic in today's age in 2019. So the next generation or once values and sort of people's opinion on logic changes, can that be changed in a in an industry where the immutable ledger is immutable? <laughs> well, so there's, there's two, uh, two answers to that question. Okay. Right? So the, the first one is that and we're seeing this play out with Facebook now, right? Okay. And, and yeah. their global coin. Yeah. So it is not easy when the business model of the internet changes and moves to networks, decentralized networks, uh, and away from centralized cloud platforms. When you have a business which is kind of hardened around a particular business model, its shareholders expect certain financial performance, I would say it is almost impossible for an organization of that scale to pivot into an entirely new business model. It's going to be very difficult. So at the moment, Facebook 
the business model of Facebook is to serve its shareholders. Yeah. And its shareholders uh, generate money from advertising revenue, and that advertising revenue is based upon them having an unfair advantage in the amount of data, your data, our data, that it has, um, and it doesn't let other people have. So it's going to be very, very difficult for them to move away from that. Let they become uh, inagile. Um, so that, that's the first piece. The, the, the second thing is that the, the, the beautiful thing about decentralized ledgers, protocols, and crypto assets is that generally they are all open source. So you can create a fork of any any particular protocol and you can make changes to its design, how it's governed, trade-offs it makes, the trilemma, trade-offs it makes, and configure it and reconfigure it. And that can operate in parallel. You can have several operating in parallel with slightly different tweaks or configurations. So this is a big experiment, not just in technology, but in socioeconomics, because you've got to remember that on the one hand, a ledger is a technology, but it it is also by enabling a digital economy, it is a a social social space. And so the neat thing here is is that the code's open source, uh, and therefore you have open source digital economies. And so that makes them... Uh, the the ability to evolve, to to learn and evolve. And then the kind of final piece to that is, you know, I think we're moving away from what I would call dumb ledgers. So these kind of gen one ledgers that basically don't learn, right? They just do the same thing again and again and again and again. And they're they're kind of very rigid. And therefore, they're very fragile, right? And, And if you want to make a change then there has to be a fork, for the fork of the code or, or whatever else. And I think we're moving now, Fetch is a really great example, to smart ledgers. So these are ledgers that learn and uh, become dynamic. And I think increasingly you're going to see these networks governed by algorithms. And so those algorithms can look at the whatever data points associated to usage and it can evolve, it can adapt. And so Fetch is the first smart ledger that's come out, but we expect many more. And that really brings uh, alive this convergence concept. So we're moving from a, like a, just a dumb, stupid ledger where the, the, the hope is that any kind of intelligence happens at the smart contract layer to um, ledgers where the ledgers themselves learn, become intelligent and can optimize. So I'm hopeful both because these are open source systems and you know you can just have ongoing experimentation, but then also the idea that these things will eventually begin to learn and adapt. All right. So what you procured to earlier was this aspect of forks, people changing, sort of these open source. There can be configurations in these open source digital economies. So to take an example now, um, Tezos, for example, has on-chain governance and they've recently, I think there was this proposal actually got accepted and it was the first time we've seen, it's like an experiment, like you said, where there's been the, the, the chain, the Tezos blockchain is actually changing because of, of a proposal that was implemented and executed by the community. A, what do you think of that? Is that sort of part of the convergence stack? And B, is there on is there equivalent on-chain governance or 
benefits of on digital economies governance? Because how I, I get how Tezos is doing it, but how do you how would you ensure that there's governance in this really broad and sort of as, abstract digital economy space? Yeah, so I mean, governance is the hardest part of both designing for and operating um, a crypto token economy. And, you know, we have a particular opinion on this that because we work with projects very early, so we're often like the first investor. Yeah. It could be a you know, pre-seed seed where it's a couple of people. Uh, and we work with them all the way through to having a live network and how they might manage that and govern it. And, you know, coming from this general startup world and applying lean startup principles, you don't codify assumptions, right? So you, you validate assumptions before you commit to code because otherwise you're, you're making something that's fragile, brittle, and it, it will, it will break. And, so what we recommend is something called the pathway to decentralization. So the aspiration for everybody is that you would have a totally or highly decentralized network where governance resides in the network, it's not centrally controlled. The reality is, is that like in a startup, you know, these things are still startups and the founders don't yet know if people are going to use it in the way that they think it's going to be used. They have lots of assumptions, and therefore we recommend in the beginning that aspects of how the network is governed are fairly centralized whilst you're still learning. And then as you validate certain things, you can then, you can then diffuse aspects of governance to the network until eventually you kind of dissolve the, it could be dissolve the foundation or the, the, the kind of uh, wet governance enti- entirely to the network. So, for us, decentralization is a journey. It's a pathway. It will be different for each network. It should be different. And there are huge benefits in starting off in a fairly uh, centralized way, but with a, a clear pathway to, to kind of dissolve into the network. So, so, so that kind of enables this greater agility and, and makes potentially, you know, you could get to the point, as I said, where governance is ran by an algorithm. And then you could have the network become anti-fragile. So yes, yeah, so that's how we how we think of governance. Now, the additional thing I'd say is, is that as a consequence of that, we generally think that a lot of the projects out there at the moment that are trying to achieve on-chain governance of things like DAOs and mm. what have you, decentralized autonomous organizations, are some time away and actually... Nobody is really asking for it at the moment, right? I think it's these things are almost intellectual fascinations by the decentralized community that because it's possible, let's do it. The reality is I don't think there's much value in them now, but you know, over time they could be very powerful. So to, to date we've generally stayed away from things that are focused too much on on-chain governance. Okay, fair enough. We are sort of um, running out of time. I think we have to do an extra podcast. Yeah, um, sure. But I definitely want to just ask um, sort of one more thing. So you guys recently re- published a report with Smart Dubai about um, convergence around smart cities. Could you give us a sort of a quick deep dive into the why and the outcome of yeah. this report? 
Yeah, so we've been working with Dubai throughout this year and a bit of last year, and uh, in particular with their Ministry of Data, focused on how they can leverage data and open up city and citizen data in a way that is a better fit with the Web3 paradigm. So in a more decentralized way and a way that puts self-sovereignty at its core. And I think that's a a really brave approach by um, Dubai because most, most smart cities by default, you know, go to Google and say, look, we've got this data. We don't really know how to turn it into value for citizens. Can you deploy DeepMind on it or Watson and, and you know, feed back that value? And, and the, so we, we wrote a paper explicitly looking at the convergence of IoT, DLT and AI in the context of a smart city and, you know, how this emergent stack of technologies could be used to ultimately speak to the smart city's goals, which are primarily citizen happiness and um, sustainability goals. And so, you know, they produce a huge amount of data. I, well, we kind of estimated that uh, it's about 600, by 2020, it will be about 620 million gigabytes worth of data across things like um, utilities, transportation, health, and real estate. And so how can we, how can we unlock that data in order that we enable a whole ecosystem of AI startups to take that data, to train their algorithms, to then serve citizens, to kind of optimize uh, for transportation, optimize and provide new innovations in healthcare rather than you know, hoping that any one large AI company is, is going to solve all those problems. So it's really creating a sandbox environment where we can leverage things like a combination of sovereign ocean protocol and fetch in order that we can create decentralized data marketplaces to kind of unleash, firstly, the ability to train algorithms through something like ocean, and then increasingly have those algorithms conduct economic activity with autonomy via fetch. And so what we're going to be doing uh, over the course of this year and next is deploying what we call living labs. So uh, real world uh, environments where we can deploy this technology to optimize for particular things. So that could be optimizing for energy consumption in large buildings. It could be optimizing certain parts of public transport. So we're, we're probably going to look at a handful of those, deploy them in a fairly controlled way, but but where it will have immediate and real-world impact for citizens. So it's a hugely exciting project. You know, if, if, we, if we kind of look at these data sets, we believe that it, it, it could be the largest kind of living data set ever connected to a set of distributed ledger technologies and blockchains. And actually... You know, it then directly speaks to the AI strategy of Dubai because yeah. data is really there to enable AI. So, you know, we're we're really humbled to have been you know engaged by Dubai to do that, and you know to do it with the direct participation of the Minister of Data and um, and what have you. Great. So. I also have many questions to follow up from that, but I guess we'll leave that to a later time. Two quick fire round questions. Okay. Um, if 
we had to interview what one person from your network who who do you think we should speak to oh that's a good one so so the the two people that i think you should speak to one of them's benjamin h bratton who i'm reading the book of at the moment called the stack i actually didn't know about it until after we kind of you know developed our own stack and uh his stack is really interesting. So it, it speaks to this idea of the kind of cloud platform and how that might be unbundled. But actually, his the layers of his stack ha- go all the way down to what he calls the earth layer. So the idea is, you know, we're creating these inc- increasingly hungry planetary scale forms of computation that are hoovering up data and, and you know, trying to uh, create increasing levels of autonomy, but it has a huge energy requirement um, uh, to the point whereby I, I think he said, you know, the, the cloud consumes more energy than the entire um, airline industry. And it's kind of, you know, footprint, the carbon footprint. So, I mean, I'm only just partly way through the book. It's like a, as thick as yeah. a Bible. Wow. I highly recommend it. It's really informing a lot of my thinking. The second person is John Callian, who's kind of head of innovation at uh, T Labs, which is the innovation arm of Deutsche Telekom. Okay. They're a really great partner of ours. We've been working with for several years, and they probably more than any other enterprise that we know of are actively adopting, playing with and in deploying at scale distributed ledger technology tokenized networks and and the general convergence thesis so um you should really check out what what he and his team are doing at T Labs awesome the second question is do you do you or your team at outlier eat your own dog food i.e. you preach decentralization do you use decentralized apps is there any decentralization in your processes yeah, it's a it's a really good it's a really good point, and it's one that we constantly constantly think about. So, on the one hand, you know we're we're an organization, we're a high growth organization ourselves, and therefore, you know, operationally we need tools that work. So that restricts a big chunk of technologies yeah. that we might. We might use from the current Web3 stack as it is. Yeah. That said, uh, we we do use things like Brave browser. I think we all um, at this stage collectively use Brave uh, as our kind of default browser. Interesting. Okay. And uh, you know, we increasingly try to use things like OrbitDB, which is um, a technology uh, created by. Uh, high networks, which is um, part of the stack, and you know we we kind of run nodes and instances of uh, of all the technologies that we're involved with. I wouldn't say that right now. You know we we kind of actively leverage that in in our commercial day to day, but it is something we kind of always really s- strive for, and uh, I, I think it's actually you know realizing the frustration or li- limitations of trying to use a lot of this technology by using it in its current form is really important because yeah. otherwise you can get very carried away with the, the theoretical possibility but you know try and use this stuff in your day to day 
And you, you very quickly realize how just how early we are. And because of a lot of the investments that we make are at the infrastructure layer, the application layer doesn't even really exist yet. So actually, as an individual, as an end user, unless you're a developer, you, you, we really need this application layer first in order that it's, it's usable. So realistically, you know, that, that's probably three, three to four, five years away from being able to use instances, combinations of all these protocols for your kind of day-to-day life. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Jamie. Um, how could people get in contact with you? Twitter's the best way. So at Jamie247, the numbers. You can go to, you find me on LinkedIn and just under Jamie Burke, or you can go to the Outlier Ventures website. We've got loads of content on there, loads of research, and the team always tries to be as responsive as possible through all the various social channels. Great stuff. Thank you so much for listening, guys, and please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't. And once again, thank you, Jamie. Thanks very much. Thanks.